evidence and answers. Rahil was a devoted Hindu, an ardent student of the Hindu scriptures, committed to his faiths, rituals, and practices, and was admired as a model priest. He was a brilliant academic and a captivating speaker for one of the most affluent Hindu organizations in the world. Politicians, industrialists, and celebrities were among those who sought his spiritual counsel. How did such a devoted Hindu come to know Jesus? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Sukaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, Pat interviews his guest, Rahil Patel, and discuss his fascinating journey out of Hinduism and to faith in Jesus Christ. Now with part one is our host, Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, how do we effectively share Christ with our Hindu friends? Many find this a great challenge, and many quickly realize we're dealing with a different mindset and a worldview. So how do we effectively share the love of Christ with our Hindu friends? Well, to help us today is Rahil Patel. Rahil was a devoted Hindu, an ardent student of the Hindu scriptures, and committed to his faith's rituals and practices. And he was considered a model priest. He was brilliant academically and a captivating speaker for one of the most affluent Hindu organizations in the world. And so with his sincere, eloquent, and persuasive, powerful speaking, he promoted Hindu thought in the political, social, and economic arenas across the Western world. Yet for all his success, Rahil felt a hunger in his heart and a longing for peace, hoping to find a loving God who could meet his needs. And Rahil intensified his meditations and his study of the Hindu scriptures, but nothing seemed to work until he had an unexpected encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. And here he finally found the love he had been looking for. It was the beginning of a surprising journey in which he experienced both painful stripping away and inner healing leading to a freedom that he had never known. So Rahil, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Thank you, Patrick. It's uh, it's an honor to be here from the other side of the world. Yes, Rahil is there in Oxford, England, where he's doing graduate work there. But Rahil, uh, can you share with us a little bit about your background? Sure, Patrick. Uh, I came, or rather I was found by Jesus Christ nearly 10 years ago. Before that, I was a Hindu monk, a priest, or the technical word in Sanskrit is sadhu, for 20 years of my life. I was born and raised in the United Kingdom. My family are Orthodox, believers in classical Hinduism, very staunch, very devoted. We had a house shrine at home every day, every morning. As soon as I wake up, the first thing I do would be to take a bath, do my prayers for 25 minutes. We all had a, a personal prayer kit that we would pray, meditate, bow down to on our own. But then we'd go downstairs into the house shrine and pray there for another 20 odd minutes. Only after that were we allowed to drink water or have breakfast. Wow. And then we'd go to school. After coming back from school, the first thing you do is you wash your hands, you wash your face, and you go back into the house shrine for five, 10 minutes and pray. And then you do your homework. Six o'clock, it's dinner time, and the family gets together in the house shrine again. We offer the food to the images in the house shrine. We pray for 20 minutes, and then we eat. 
then, you know, family would watch TV or work or whatever. Again, before bedtime, 9.30, 10 o'clock, we'd all congregate together in the house shrine and pray for another 30 minutes. So this was life at home, very dedicated, very devoted to the guru and the denomination that we belong to within the Hindu canvas of Vedic traditions. And on weekends, we always spent our time in the temple. So in the 60s and 70s, a lot of the Asian Indians that migrated to the UK were from East Africa. Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania were former British colonies. And the way to get together on the weekends was to congregate and meet at the temple. So every Saturday and Sunday, we'd go there. This way, families were able to maintain their cuisine, their culture, language, and just find out what others are doing. So this was my life, really, Patrick, you know, growing up, school, home, and religion, community, culture on the weekends. And then in my early teens, when I was around 16, 15, 16 years old, I really had this passion to pursue God further, deeper. In our denomination, the guru represented God on earth. He was the vessel, the complete vessel for God. And whatever he said, whatever he did, we believed firmly all over the world that God was doing that. So I was 16 and he had visited London at our temple in 1988. And I gave a speech in the congregation. I spoke on two Hindu scriptures and there were about 3000 people there and he really liked it. And typically, traditionally, after you've given a talk in the congregation, if the guru is sitting there, you go and bow down to him. You, you place your hands on his feet and you place your forehead on his feet and you bow down. And when I did this, this was May the 3rd, 1988. He looked at me and said, you'd be a very good monk. You should become a priest. You have a good gift. And immediately, Patrick, I thought, wow, this is God telling me my destiny is mm. fixed to pursue and find God. You know, and I just immediately got this recognition, you know, from this guru who was God to me. So I finished my A-levels at the age of 19 and left for India. Now, my parents weren't really happy because in this particular denomination, the vows of detachment were quite extreme, but in that culture, they're quite normal. So if you dedicate your life to be a monk in this particular tradition, you can never talk to your parents again. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's quite intense. You never get married. You cannot intentionally look at women, touch women. You don't get paid. There's not a penny in your name. Even if you touch money accidentally, you have to wash your hands 25 times. Mm. So there were all these extreme rules around detachment. So my parents weren't happy, but I was radical. I really wanted to pursue this. And so I left for India. In India, there's a uh, training center in the middle of the state of Gujarat, which is in Northwest India. It's a 250 acre campus. And that's where I trained for six years. It's, it's really vigorous. You wake up at quarter to five every morning. You have a cold water bath. You pray, meditate with your personal prayer kit for 45 minutes. And then at six o'clock, everyone gets together in the main temple in the compound where we will worship together. Then you're allocated different chores. And then from nine o'clock, the sermons, the classes start and they go all day, uh, Patrick, till about eight, nine o'clock at night. Mm. 
Wow. And in between, you have breaks for homework, revision, meditation, uh, going back up into the temple, praying again, doing more worship. So we studied that particular denomination in depth, but other Hindu philosophies as well, and basic world religions. So that was the sort of nature of the training center for six years. But um, something really significant happened in my first month. This is November 1991. I was upstairs in the temple and there were 150 of us priests training at the same time. And we were in worship and the bells were ringing and the drums were beating and I was prostrating to the images in the temple. And just then, as I was doing this, this was around six o'clock at night, I heard this voice. It wasn't audible, but a sense in my left ear. And it said, have you made the right decision? Are you in the right place? And you know, Patrick, this just shook me. It was so authentic. It was not audible, but I knew someone had just said something. I can still remember that moment vividly today. I stood up, everybody else was still, still bowing. And I walked to the side of this huge temple, which was three floors high. And I looked over the balcony, stared at the ground. And I said to myself, my goodness, what have I done? You know, I've left my family, I've left my country. And just then I thought, okay, this must be Maya. Maya is the Hindu sort of version of, of the devil. Uh-huh. I thought, okay, this must be Maya just preventing me from entering into my God-given destiny. So I suppressed it. But it troubled me because it was authentic. Anyway, a couple of months later, the guru had come to the training center and, you know, he sat with me personally. I was really fortunate because I was considered as one of his favorites. There were about 800 priests at the time. And he said, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I just have some doubts now. He said, what is it? I said, well, I'm looking at these other priests who have been fasting, meditating, worshiping, chanting, reading scripture for 30, 40 years. But I have noticed that there's not much internal change. There's a lot of external rituals, rules, and regulations. I was a bit cheeky to say that, but it was just my observation. And he said to me, you think too much. Mm. Internal transformation will take place. It takes time. These are not overnight things. And so I left the room, his chamber, but with some doubt. Anyway, I completed the uh, six years of training. I was ordained and given orange robes. My head was shaved forever. That was my training for six years. And then I was placed in London to oversee uh, Europe and Russia. So this organization had flourished a lot in the USA, in East Africa, South Africa, Middle East, obviously India and the Far East, but not Europe. So the guru placed me in London in 1997 and said that, why don't you develop Europe and Russia? Now, by this time, I kept having doubts. Is this true? Is this the correct path? But I kept suppressing it with spiritual language that we were taught when and if the mind plays tricks. We were taught certain spiritual language, certain meditative skills. But I don't know if you can understand this. You know, sometimes when you do things mentally, intellectually, but it still doesn't sit in your heart. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of situation I was in. And I was really struggling. But this opportunity was given to me. And so I got really busy. I started traveling 
was doing about 80,000, 90,000 miles a year and uh, developed temples and centers across Europe, built the congregations. So for a few years, you see, Patrick, the busyness and success mm -hmm. of the work that I was doing suppressed the pain and the doubt, you know. But then ironically, even that kind of success became monotonous. Mm -hmm. And I came back to that place of doubt, emptiness, sort of internal void, you know, because I, I had this sense that once I pursue this, I'll have this deep sense of fulfillment. I'll have a deep sense of peace, you know. Uh -huh. It was nothing like that. Inside, nothing was changing in my internal world. You know, I was fasting, praying, looking after the followers, traveling, speaking, chanting, worshiping, doing all these things. And I thought, why is there no quiet deep down inside? Why is there still this noise, this uneasiness, this uncertainty, this anxiety? And um, I thought, okay, let's go back deeper into Hindu scriptures. So I reread the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, a few more times. I started looking into other Hindu philosophies. And um, I was studying about two, three hours a day while I was traveling and building the organization in Europe. And I still didn't find the answers. You know, I just felt myself filling myself with intellectual knowledge. And then, you know, I had a very small congregation in Rome. I had about nine people there. But on my first visit, they took me to the Vatican. Mm. And they took me to the Sistine Chapel. And the Sistine Chapel is packed, obviously. So the Swiss guards, ironically, gave me a private space to sit right under the painting by Michelangelo on the Last Judgment. Mm. <laughs> and I sat there and I looked up and on my left were these stories of Jesus. Now, I had forgotten them because we did them at school as a child. And on the uh, right-hand side, there were stories of John the Baptist. The ceiling is, as you know, Michelangelo, but the sides were done by Botticelli. And I remember vividly looking at these stories of Jesus and without even thinking, my heart just said these words, this is so simple, it makes sense. I said that to myself. And then I just secretly began to have this fascination of Jesus, you know, the cross, wherever. I did about 400 trips into Europe, so lots of traveling within Europe. I found myself always noticing the cross on top of a church building or in a quiet corner of a town square or as the plane is landing into the airport, into the city. I, my eyes would just find this cross and I just found it captivating. I found it attractive. Now, I, I was in a very senior position by this time and you know, people didn't question me. So I started visiting various churches in Europe, just loved being in the atmosphere in the midst of my itinerary, in the midst of preaching, building Hindu temples. No one questioned it because I just said to people, I'm just interested. I'm looking at how they do architecture. I'm looking how they do art. But I knew that there was something attractive. And so this sort of cycle just continued. Lots of travel, lots of preaching, this secret, quiet, you know, fascination towards Jesus. And then one day I asked a friend of mine, a very trustworthy friend, that can you get me a children's version of the Bible? He said, sure, I'll get a view. I said, I just want to know 
what their theology is and what they teach, etc. And then he gave it to me and I remember opening it and I just opened it anywhere. And I remember it was at the Gospel of Matthew. And I started reading a few verses. Now, I'm in my orange robes in the monastery in London at this time. And I've got this Bible in front of me. I, I had the door locked of my office. And as I read these verses, I just immediately had this sense that someone just spoke back to me. I'd never had that that sense that someone was speaking to me while I was reading a scripture or a book. So this was a literally a 10-second experience. I quickly shut the Bible and I shoved it in the middle of all of my other books in my office library and I just buried it there. So this led to my theology changing slightly. I was giving a lot of talks, especially in North America at the national conventions. And somehow God, I didn't know at the time, but God was pushing the boundaries and borders of my mind and sort of shaping and telling me that, you know, God is much bigger than a guru, much bigger than these images in a, in a temple. And so I just had this very different view of God. I didn't know who he was or what to call him, but I just knew that he was bigger than what I believed. And in Orlando in 2007, I gave the keynote speech at the national convention and it was a 10 minute intro. I quoted a verse from the Hindu scriptures, but then I just gave an interpretation of my own based on my travels, my experiences, what I had sensed. And I got a standing ovation. Mm. It was so bizarre. I went and sat down next to my colleague, who's also a priest, also from England. And he said, how did you interpret that verse like that? It was amazing. And I thought to myself, oh dear, only if you knew it had nothing to do with Hinduism. You know, it, it was just this idea that God is much bigger, uh, more beautiful and um, bigger than the borders we've created in our minds. So now this led to problems later on, <laughs> obviously, at the senior level, people started questioning. I didn't know this. People felt that they couldn't challenge me head on. They said, well, you know, there's something wrong in his talks. <laughs> I was in America in 2010. I had a period of illness as well during my life as a priest. And so I was in the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida for 10 months. And in the weekends, I used to travel around the US and preach in various temples and congregations. And my message was getting broader, slightly away from the central doctrine that we all were pursuing and believe. Mm. Anyway, after my clinic time was over, I came back to England and I thought, let me go back to India and meet the guru because he was still my father figure. He was still my God. I was still going to preach that he's God, even though I had these doubts and all these questions. I said, let's go and see him. And that meeting didn't go down well. Long story short, this is 2011. I went into the meeting. Now, I always had access to him privately. Nobody would be in the room when I would meet him. Now, this is a huge organization, you know, with by 2010, you know, we had invested $700 million in building temples in North America alone. And um, around the guru, you have senior priests, you have his full team, you have 
personal secretaries and so on and so forth. But whenever in my life I've I'd wanted to meet him, I was always given an empty room, private. So I went in to see him, but as I went in, a group of senior priests came with me, and I thought, okay, something's up, something's not right. I'm I'm cutting a fairly long story short here. Anyway, that meeting was about my theology. It was about my speeches, my beliefs. And for the first time in 20 years, I sat there listening to everyone debate and discuss my attitudes. The guru said, okay, look, for punishment, I'll keep you in the villages of India. You can't go to the West and influence the West like this. For the first time in my 20 years, I said no to God. (laughs) I'm not, I'm going to go back to England. He said, okay, I'll put you in a small town in the US, but not England. I said, no, I'm going to go back to England. And they carried on debating. And then suddenly it just came out of my mouth. I said, look, I just want to go back home. I'm going to leave these robes, these orange robes, and I want to go back into civilian life. And the room went silent. And he said, yeah, okay, fine, you go, which was a shock to me, you know, after 20 years of service. And he gave me two conditions, never to give a speech again in your life and um, not to talk to anyone in the congregation. And I frankly agreed because whenever I gave talks, I never believed what I was preaching anyway. So I used to tell my congregation's time in again, please don't record this. In Norway, I was speaking to the congregation and I asked them, I said, do you believe everything I'm telling you? They said, of course, you're wearing orange robes. You're not married. You've sacrificed your family. You don't get paid. You must be telling the truth. And I thought, is that the parameters you use to figure out and find out if someone's telling you the truth, how holy of an appearance they give you. So I wasn't really concerned about speaking and not speaking. I agreed and on December the 27th, Patrick, I left priesthood and I was back in civilian clothes and uh, came back to England. Oh, wow. So that's quite a journey here. I relate to some of it. Uh, growing up, you know, in a Japanese Buddhist home, but Buddhism is not as extreme as your form of Hinduism was. Wow. Well, tell us then uh, your journey then. How did you come to find Jesus Christ? Oh, well, truth be told, one friend in central London, he had a hotel and he was a very loyal friend to me. He said, look, come and stay here. I won't tell anyone that you're here in my hotel. My parents had moved overseas by then. It had been 10 years since they had moved out of England. So they weren't there. So he said to me, look, stay here. Now let's, you know, look for a job for you after 20 years. I don't know what kind of a CV you can you can write. But he said for four weeks, you know, just um, walk around the city on your own. Because as a priest, we could only go outside the temple complex if we were with another priest and a couple of followers. We were never allowed to be on our own when we left the complex. We always had to be in pairs and always with followers. So now my mindset at this stage when I landed in England was a disappointment with this whole idea of God, you know, pursuing God. Because, you know, Patrick, I, 
I did a 2,000 mile pilgrimage across India. I climbed the sacred mountain of Girnar three times. That's 10,000 steps. Mm. Uh, you go up through the clouds to offer worship to the Hindu mystic Dathatray. I went to the birthplace of Ram, the birthplace of Krishna, bathed in the Ganges, bathed in the Yamuna, several pilgrimages like that. And I thought, you know, what did that do for me? And so I was really disappointed. Fair enough, you know, the priestly life, the, the work that I did was successful. You know, the organization started meeting presidents and prime ministers across Europe, ambassadors and things like that. And so I thought, look, I just want a quiet, simple job get married and settle down. So second week into Jan, I was walking to the station to catch a train into central London. And I was fully focused straight ahead. And for some weird reason, my head just turned 90 degrees to the right. And down this quiet road, I saw this church. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps even hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org and you may do so right there online. You will also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrat. <laughs> <laughs>